morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're watching this, wherever you're watching it from, uh, we're so, so thankful that you're spending a little bit of time with us uh, because, you know, we know that sometimes you just need a solid dose of everything is going to be okay, right? In the midst of a crazy world that we're living in, sometimes it's a solid reminder to us that we may feel out of control, but this is not taking God by surprise at all. That he is, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, he is absolutely and completely in control. Now, uh, it, we're in week three of this month's series from A to Ziklag, and I just want to say, if you didn't get a chance to watch last week's sermon, uh, my sister Jess absolutely smashed it. Uh, so you want to, when you're done watching me, of course, uh, go back onto our YouTube channel and you can catch up on what happened last week. Uh, but I wanted to take a little bit of time this morning to address uh, really some of the challenges and some of the pain that so many people are experiencing in the world right now. You know, I kind of wanted to take a pause because as I was preparing for this message, I realized that we're about right now at the one year mark of when the COVID-19 virus essentially first touched down in North America. It's like we're, we're literally hovering the day when you first started to hear of one, two, three, four, five cases popping up around the world. And, and I think if there's one thing that we could agree on, if we disagree on a lot of stuff, <laughs> but we could agree on one thing that this year has been one heck of a challenging, difficult year. And, and right where we are right now, um, if you've been watching along with us, you know we're talking about David. And, and in one of the amazing stories that the scripture talks to us about David is, is that he is in this, this battle. And, and you know, we've, we've talked about it for the last few weeks and that he's in a battle and he's fighting alongside the Philistines. And I love the point that my sister made last week that, you know, at one point David was killing Philistines and now David is more comfortable amongst the Philistines than with his own people, right? So how many of you would say David probably had a challenging year or a challenging decade at this point of his life? And, and he, he's trying to fight alongside the Philistines and the Philistines. Some of the generals are like, hey, isn't this the David that everybody says Saul kills thousand and David kills 10,000? Like, why are we allowing him into our strategy sessions? And, and we know that from that point, David goes back to the place of Ziklag where, you know, his family is and his people's family and all their stuff is only to find that it's been ransacked. After that, David kind of sets out to go after uh, the people who have ransacked the kind of the place and, and he, 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 he fights them, his, him and his men fight them and they essentially recover everything. It says that not a single one of their wives or children had been killed or anything. They recover all their stuff and more because not only did they take their stuff back, Right? How many of you would say that after this year? Lord, I don't want just what is mine back. I want an over-the-top blessing for going through everything that maybe I've gone through this year. So David and his men come back with more. Um, and, and we reach this point now in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 21. Um, and and we, we start to notice that this great victory and... God has done amazing things for these people. And 
spared them and saved them and blessed them. And, and, and in verse 21, we come to see that essentially there was this group of 200 men that the scripture says, and I'm actually just going to read it. It says this, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor Valley. They came out to meet David and, with, and the men with him. And David and his men approached and he asked him, David being, he asked them, you know, how are you? How are you guys feeling? You were a little tired, a little cranky. So we thought it would be best if you stayed behind. Okay. They were probably too tired from weeping. Right? We talked about that in week one. It says that they cried until they were too tired to cry anymore. So these men are, they're in mourning. They were, you know, caught up in their emotions. And David's like, hey guys, how are you? But the scripture goes on to say, but all the evil men and troublemakers among, among David's followers said, because they did not go with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man, you can take your wives and your kids back. So we see that there is this split now where, you know, David is split He's on the run against, you know, King Saul and the Israelites, and they're kind of this band of brothers, and they're kind of standing together. And, and then in the midst of the split, we're starting to see another split in David's people who are following David saying, you know, we, we are the guys with, and you guys didn't come, and so you don't get to take anything that we got. And David replies, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has, God has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share the like. So Heavenly Father, this morning as we dig into your scriptures, our heart, God, is to, to be like David, to be someone who fights for unity, fights for togetherness. And in the midst of a crazy world, in the midst of these crazy times, we ask that your heart of unity and love would be the pervasive force in our life. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would like to, you know, recap the obvious. If you've been sleeping for the last hundred or, or the last year, or maybe you're a time traveler and you came back and you're like, what just, what, what happened here? Uh, we remember that, that really at this time, like I said, um, and, and really up until mid-March of, of last year, the whole world essentially has shut down because of this COVID-19 global pandemic. And, and in the midst of the chaos and the confusion, the shutdowns, the frustrations, some people lost loved ones. Some people lost loved ones tragically where they couldn't be with them in the hospital or they were kept outside of places. And other people lost jobs. Some people lost income or portions of their income. Some people lost their business that they had given their life for because of the shutdowns. But I think there was one thing that maybe we all had in common as human beings is that each of us lost our sense of normalcy. And one of the things, if you look back throughout human history, you'll notice that many crises in life 
often have this amazing effect amongst humanity that there is this almost supernatural unifying effect that crisis typically has amongst the population. Like if you recall, September the 11th, 2001, when terrorist planes flew into the Twin Towers. I don't know about you, but I remember the exact moment in math class where I was when this happened. And in the midst of this insane crisis in the world, American patriotism surged. And and it was as if the world got behind America to really unite with them in the midst of their crisis. Yet this year, so this last year, I've noticed something is that COVID-19 really seemed to have the opposite effect. That instead of unifying us, it really polarized us. You know, and, and it really feels as though we're, we're kind of this people group that's divided on two separate sides. You know, like you really have side A who's, you know, saying, you know, this is a serious thing. You know, it's wise that obviously we do our very best to, you know, not infect the whole world. But, you know, by shutting down the economy and everything and locking people in their homes, you know, I think that we might be creating something worse than spreading the virus. And, you know, you have that side and then you have the other side where you, you hear people saying, you know, it's irresponsible. It's, it's borderline reckless for us to reopen things and go back to life. You know, it's like, like, listen, people don't be stupid. We need to do whatever we can to stop the virus from spreading. And, and we see that there's these two sides that very vocally are opposing each other in the midst of this crisis. And I mean, we've even felt this where the church is concerned, where, you know, initially when we made the decision last year uh, to to close and really to stay closed, you know, we got yelled at for closing. You know, people asking, where's our faith and where's our belief? And, you know, and then we opened the church and surprisingly enough, we got yelled at and chewed out because now we're, we're risking lives by being open. And, you know, then in the midst of this absolutely crazy year, and, you know, just when you think things can't get any worse, we have the tragic deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Who brought really attention to this ongoing hatred, this ongoing problem of racism in our world. Unless you don't think that racism is a problem in the world and it's manufactured. And, and we see in an already divided world, we see two more sides emerge yet again. And there's more anger, there's more disagreement, there's more discord, there's more tension, there's more division. And honestly, it doesn't stop there. I mean, we are divided in politics. We're divided where the media is concerned, whether you like big tech or hate big tech, whether you're for censorship or against censorship, whether you think the school should be open or closed or the border should be open or closed, whether you think you should wear one mask or two masks or no masks or five masks. And the list of what divides us seems like in this crisis, it only constantly grows. And you know what the worst part is in this whole thing? 
It's not the masks. It's that I'm guessing that the devil is laughing at us. Because this is, this is really the only weapon the enemy has. And, and I would go as far to say this is his greatest strategy against his people. I mean, against all people is to divide us. But even more so, his attention is always directed towards the body of Christ. And if you wonder why, it's simply because that if we work together, if we can prefer each other, if we can, in the midst of our differing opinions, stand united, we are an unstoppable force. That we are absolutely unbeatable in the face of any crisis the world has to offer. But when we're divided, we're weak, we are ineffective. And really the state of the church in the world right now is that we're often honestly just simply overlooked. Now here's the deal. I'm not a politician. I'm not the prime minister of the country yet. Maybe one day I will be. So I don't really have the power to change the way the world responds to crises, but I do because of the place that I've been given have some influence into the way our church family responds to these things. And, and really what I'm going to do today is, is I'm going to be like David and, or I'm going to be like Paul in the passage that we're going to read right now is I'm going to make the same, you know, passionate, faith-filled appeal to each of us to maybe challenge the way that we've been responding to crisis. And this is a text that we can read in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth. And he says this, I appeal to you. This word means like, I'm, I beg you. I, I urge you. I'm, I'm just absolutely pleading with you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. And then, you know, maybe you're like, okay, Paul, cool guy, but if his words aren't enough, then, then let's look at what Jesus asks his father to do for us in prayer. John chapter 17, verse 20 says this, I, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Verse 23 goes on to say this, so that they may be brought to, the com to complete unity. And then the world will know. When? Then. When is then? Then is when they're all one. When, like Paul said, we prefer to be together rather than, it, Jesus says, then. It's in that moment the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is letting us know, encouraging us that, that rather than being divided and weak, we can stand together united and strong. 
that we can resist the schemes or the attacks or the strategies of the enemy. And that by doing this, not only will our lives generally be better, not, not only will generally we have more place in the world, but, but, but Jesus tells us that it's at that moment when we decide to remain together, that we'll be helping to usher in God's will, right? On earth, like Jesus said, as it is in heaven. So Jesus prays this. He says, I pray that they may be one. And I began to think about this statement that Jesus makes. And I began to think about it from the sense of what if, what if we could? What if this generation could become the answer to this prayer? Not, not somebody way off in the distance, not some future generation, but what if I could? What if together we could? What if we could set aside our differences, our opinions, our perspectives, our preferences? So immediately the question then is raised, how do we become one? Right, because it sounds amazing, doesn't it? Like you say it, it's pretty well the easiest concept to preach in church until someone posts something on Facebook that I disagree with. So what will unite the church? I'm gonna tell you something, it, it's not politics. Because I promise you, there's just as many people who are convinced that Trump should have been president are convinced that Trump shouldn't have been president. Yeah. It's not preference. It's not whether you like me to shout or to stand up here and read the Bible somberly. That's not going to unite us. In fact, what we've watched in the world is that those things only serve to divide us yeah. even further. So I thought about it. Because I actually want to know. I want to know what would it take to unite us? And, and I came to the answer, and it's fairly simple. So I apologize. But I think it will take two very simple things. It's going to take one enemy and one mission. One enemy and one mission. So what will unify the church? We see in... Ephesians 6, 12 tells us this. It says, you know, and sometimes I got to go back and read this because I got to remember. <laughs> it says, for our struggle is not against who? The Karens and the Todds of the world, right? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's not about against organizations. It's not against thoughts or perspectives or opinions. It says this, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Can I tell you something? The church that's down the street who does things differently is not our enemy. The people who think that I should be preaching out of the King James or the New King James or the message, they are not our enemy. 
people who desire different styles of worship are not our enemy. Can I tell you the person who voted differently than you is not your enemy. The person with a different skin color than you is not your enemy. The person who comes from a different background is not your enemy. People who prefer to listen to Christian and or secular music are not your enemy. If you dress different, if you wear a mask or don't wear a mask, if you express yourself differently, you are not my enemy. And I've come to realize this, people who believe different, whether I agree with them or not, they are not my enemy. The Bible tells me I have one enemy. Scripture gives him different names. He's the devil. He's the prince of darkness. He's the father of lies. He's the great deceiver. John 10, 10 says this. He's the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to steal our unity. He wants to kill our church. And he wants to destroy our weakness. This is why we have to choose to unite around Christ. Not politics or programs or preferences or perspectives. We are united around Jesus. And when we're united, we are unstoppable to showing the love of Christ to this hurting, broken, dying world full of people who are searching and turning to all these other things to try to bring a sense of normalcy. But divided, when we are divided, we are weak and ineffective. And I've realized this, right? That one of the strongest unifying forces, and, and we've seen this throughout human history, like you can kind of have squabbles in, in life, but one of the strongest uniting forces, and we, we saw this as a great example in World War II, is one of the strongest things that can unite us is the common enemy, right? Like there's even this saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That, that I don't have to agree with you on a lot of different things, but what I can agree with is that this guy is bad and we need to do whatever we can in order to remove the power that this enemy has. We're like, you notice this with siblings, right? I have two sisters and I mean, we essentially, I mean, we get along better now, but growing up, like it was really, it was like a 50-50 roll the dice on the day as to whether me and my sisters were going to get along. Like I have vivid memories of my sister Liz chasing me around with like a plastic Nerf bat. And honestly, it sounds crazy, but that was kind of just a normal day in the basement when things just slightly got out of control. Okay. So, so here's the deal is like you, 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 you like, you may not like your brother. You might not like your sister, right? Until someone comes and threatens them. And then all of a sudden there's this thing in you that rises up when it's like, I don't care how many times Lizzie hit me with the bat. We're going to deal with this problem together, right? This is where the statement comes out of that, that blood is thicker than water. And so I realize what? is going to unite the church is that when I realize you are not my enemy, but I have an enemy and we're going to unite to defeat his ability to steal, kill 
and destroy, right? This is one, it's, it's gotta be like, you know, where we like wise up at a time when it's like somebody posts that thing, you know, online and maybe they're like, you know, they say something like all lives matter, right? And you're like, oh God, I hate that person. And you feel like you need to go on this insane type. Instead of it, you gotta be like, oh devil, I see what you're doing here. I see it. I see you're trying to get me to hate this person that I'm supposed to be for. See, we may be different, but we do not have to be divided. So one enemy, we have a common enemy. And the second thing is, is we have one mission. And, and we see Jesus give us this mission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And, and this is essentially like, this is the last thing Jesus is gonna say to his disciples. You know, he spent three years with them, teaching them and training them at the time of his crucifixion, right? They've like all failed, you know, like they all forgot about the mission. We know they all scatter. Peter denies Jesus, you know, and he's, you know, he goes through the passion sequence. He's, he's tortured, he's crucified, you know, he's forgotten, he's laid in the tomb and then he resurrects in this triumphant, glorious moment. And he's getting ready to give the reins of control over to this group of people that like literally, you know, 48 hours earlier took off on him and just were like trying to preserve their own lives. And, and if this was me, like this is the moment when you're like, this has got to be the best, most motivational speech I have ever given in my whole life because these guys are the worst. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. This is our mission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have one mission. Now, there's a lot of ways to do this mission. We're gonna all pick from that and see different things and hear different things and some people are gonna to wanna to get into ministry and some people are gonna to wanna to get into business and some people are gonna to wanna to do missions and some people are gonna, who knows what they're gonna to wanna to do. There's so many ways to accomplish the mission, but there's only one mission. It's to help people to know the life-giving love and immeasurably poured out grace that Jesus has to offer. But sadly, you know, as I think about it, and I think about the state of the church, and I ask myself, like, what are we known for today? You know, like, if you were to just not ask one of us inside of church right now, but if you were to leave your house right now and go down the street and, you know, pick five random people and ask them, just ask them what they think about the church. And most people would kind of give the answer, you know, we're known for our traditions, you know, maybe they'll talk about, you know, I went to a Catholic church sometime and, and I really remember the traditions or maybe we're known for our historical buildings that churches around the world are some of the most beautiful buildings in the world, you know? Maybe, you know, we're known that we're kind of like one group but we have a whole bunch of different styles. We have a whole bunch of different opinions and ways of doing things. And, you know, maybe we're known for our worship because, you know, gospel and, and worship music has become a genre. And, you know, maybe we're known for those things. But 
I think that honestly, if, if, if we were to think about it, that most people, they really know us for what we're against, right? Like Christians are judgmental. Christians are hypocritical. Christians are divisive. They're hateful. I talked about this in the first week of this, that oftentimes the church is synonymous with hate. And I realized something that instead of that, I want to be known for something different, right? I want, I want to leave a legacy in the world where when people think about church or at least people that I've had the opportunity to interact with, that, that they, would, they would be like, oh, the church, yeah. Those are the, those people who they love well, despite of all of our differences. You know, oh, the church, oh man, those are the people that are just so full of grace that like you can't believe like my friend who like shouldn't even be allowed to walk into a strip club, like he walked into a church and they loved him because they're just so full of grace. Or, you know, oh, the church, those are the most generous people. The church, oh, they're the ones who like stood up and marched in those rallies for justice. Or the church, yeah, those are the people that are so full of compassion and empathy and grace and love and... And this is the thing is that the Bible gives us one example, only one, one example of how the world is going to know that we are followers of Jesus. One, like you could go study the Bible and realize there's one way that Jesus says, they will know you are mine because of Right? They'll know you're mine because you could quote the scriptures really well. That's not what Jesus says. They will know you are mine because you have a really nice church building. That's not what they say. It says this. The world's going to know that we're followers of Jesus because we love each other well. John 13, 34 and 35 says this. A new commandment I give you. A new commandment. Love one another. Love one another as I've loved you. So you must love one another. And it's by this, by what? By this new command to love one another in the same way as he loved us. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. And in case you've missed it or got confused by the previous sentence, he says, this is how you're gonna know if you love one another. <laughs> and I believe this is the church that's arising out of this crisis. Like, I mean, I think it would be so amazing if, if out of this, what starts to hit the media is like, this insane situation happened to this church. And like, can you believe how those Christians forgave that person? Like, can you believe how those Christians, oh, they are just always so full of grace. Like they're so nice. It's actually infuriating. 
right? Like, I just can't believe how those Christians will like fly all over the world and do whatever they have to do in order to stand with that group of oppressed people. Like Christians are the best people at loving the hurting. I mean, the church, like this church, they helped me rebuild my house, right? This was the church that they visited me in prison. This was the church that helped me tutor my child. This was the church that helped me pay for my bills. They are the most compassionate, they're the most grace-filled, they're the most loving and empathetic and generous people in the whole world. This is what I want to be known for. Not what I'm against. Because I tell you something, we're all against a whole bunch of different things. And we'll always pick the scripture and be motivated by certain scriptures that are different than other people. But if we allow that to divide us and break our relationships and break our covenants. That's what it says in Romans 5, Romans 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that, so we want the mind of Christ, right? We make this confession, have the mind of Christ. So this is Paul saying, you're gonna have the mind of Christ, why? You have the mind of Christ so that with one mind and one voice, what the mind of Christ is here to unite us. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this all sounds so nice, right? Doesn't it? It sounds like, yes, I want this. But how do we do this practically, right? In a world that's oh, just full of pain, it's full of anger, it's full of differences, it's full of challenges, how do we actually unite with one mind and one voice? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul goes on to tell us how we do it. He doesn't just say that you should do it. He says this. In Romans 15, verse 7, he says this, accept one another. Accept one another. Accept your differences. Accept your challenges. Then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So realize this, we, we talk about this. I want to glorify God with my life. I want to be used. I want to be, I want to be pleasing and acceptable to God. I want to get to heaven and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The Apostle Paul tells us exactly how to do this. Accept one another. In the Greek, this phrase, accept one another, is, it's a very long and, and honestly very picturesque word that I will not dare <laughs> to say. Because oftentimes we can think that like accept is like this thing where it's like, well, I accept you. It's, it's become this thing of just like, yeah, I accept you. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, 
yeah, 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 like I disagree with everything about you and I hate what you stand for, but of course, in the spirit of love and unity, I accept you. But when the apostle Paul wrote this word, he intentionally uses a phrase and it, and it literally means, this, this word accept means, it means like if someone is, is out there and they're like lost and broken, that you like open up your arms and bring that person to yourself. So intensely that, that, that they can feel the love. Like you ever been hugged by somebody and you get like the, right? And you're like, oh, that was nice. But then you ever been hugged by somebody, like, like sometimes people have that, like when they're getting ministry and somebody hugs them and you could tell it's like the first like 10 seconds of the hug is whatever. And then it's like at second 11, it's like all of a sudden, like the person like dies in your arms. And they're just like, oh God, I'm just, what? Because there's that, that feeling of, oh, just, oh, just the love and the embrace and the fullness of acceptance that you can just let down all of your walls and just be who you are and all of your issues and differences. That it literally means, this word means to like take someone by the hand, right? Like how I would do with Danielle. Like I would take her by the hand and, and we would walk together in this, this intensely deep unity as, as, as not just like people who like, yeah, I guess like we could sort of go, but like, no, we're like walking together as hand in hand as companions that the whole world would know that I'm with them and they're with me. And this is the challenge, right? How do we accept people who are so different? How do we accept people with different perspectives, different religions, different lifestyles, different backgrounds? And the answer is so simple. We accept others as Christ accepted us. You see, he didn't accept me when I had it all together. He didn't accept me when I got ordained and decided to like live my life in the right way. You know, the Bible says 2000 years ago, when he saw me and looked at me and looked at all the times that I was gonna live in a direct affront to everything that he considered holy. When I spit on him with my actions as he hung on the cross. It was then in that moment when we couldn't be more opposite. He looked at me and said, I accept you. Scripture says, while we were sinners, when I was imperfect and unrighteous, it was in that moment, not when we decided to go to the same church or when I decided to accept him as my savior and Lord. No, it was in that moment when I was a sinner living intentionally in sin, that he dies for me. So where does unity start? It starts with me. It starts with you. It starts with us together making a decision that I'm no longer gonna try to unite around our perspectives or our preferences because that will always vary radically. I'm gonna unite around that we have one enemy and we have one mission. Because I realized the world is just sick and tired of hearing Jesus talk. 
It's sick and tired of us hearing the church throw scriptures and concepts at them. What the world wants is they want to see Jesus. So I guess this is my charge to us is that we would stop talking and start loving. That instead of this social media blow up, we choose to grow up, right? Because honestly, can I tell you, you are not changing anything with a rant. I know you think it, and you think your points are so good that nobody can think any different. But let's get over our differences and just simply choose to unite. Because can I tell you something? What does change things is our love. And that's the thing, what does love do? What does Jesus do? Like you might say, yeah, Alex, this is great, but like racism is a real problem. And I would say, you're right, racism is a problem. And the love of Jesus has this amazing ability to overcome hatred and prejudice and racism. And, and you might say, well, the addiction in the world right now is so horrible. And, and I would say, yes, the love and the power of Jesus has the ability to break the chains of addiction. And, and the grace of Jesus can restore and rebuild any relationship that you have. And this is the thing, what can Jesus do? And, and Jesus will, I'll tell you, he will give you the power to get out of debt. He's gonna give you the power to get healed from your sickness. He will protect you from the attacks of the enemy. He will get you freed from the prison of comparison. He is the Prince of Peace who will calm your anxiety, your stress and your fear. This is Jesus, who is he? He is the son of God and he loves you with an everlasting love as demonstrated by his desire to die for you while you were a sinner on the cross when you didn't deserve it. Because of this, I've realized that I'm not going to fight someone who Jesus died for. Because you're not my enemy. I have one enemy and I have one mission. And I've realized that we can do infinitely more together than we can do apart. So I'm gonna take a minute and pray for us. I believe this is a holy moment as we stand in the midst of a, a world that seems on the outside to only be getting more divided to stand like Moses and Aaron did in the Old Testament and be the difference. I'm gonna ask with every head bowed and every eye closed that we just take a moment of privacy and concentration where whether you're in this room, whether in your house, wherever you are, as we honestly take some inventory of our life and not out of shame or condemnation, but where I actually step back and say, maybe I'm like this. Maybe I've thought that by standing for God, I had to stand against the very people he died for. Father, I'm asking this morning as we sit in this place of humility, as human beings and 
cry out for your grace. As we so desperately want to be the people that you speak about. As we so desperately want to be the, the catalysts of change. First, we ask for your forgiveness for everything we've done. Whether we knew it or not, to perpetuate this divisive, the separate mentality. And we ask that you would make us, make me, make me a person of unity. Make me a person who can love the unlovable. Make me a person who loves people who are different. Make people, make me a person who doesn't stumble over our differences, but I'm able to see the gold in different ways of thinking, different ways of doing things. Make me this person who would rather be together than be apart. I'd rather be with you than against you. Jesus, I'm asking for your heart in this. We know that it's your heart, it's your mind that changes us and transforms us. That as we endeavor to love and accept and embrace people, Lord, that we would see the automatic fruit of that in our life. I'm gonna encourage you with every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you're watching this stream right now. And maybe you're like, this is not the church I've ever heard of. This is not the Jesus I've ever heard of. And you're sitting here and you'd say, maybe I've been hurt by church. Maybe I've never been in a relationship with Jesus, but I want this. This is the Jesus I've been searching for. The Bible tells us very clearly that we can come into relationship with Jesus. It says that if we would confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that he is the savior, he's the Lord, he is who he said he was, that we would come into this supernatural relationship with him. So I'm gonna ask this, everybody in this room, in your houses, wherever we are, let's just repeat this together as we make our public confession that we believe in him. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God the savior of the world, that you were sent to, he to earth to die for my sins. I accept you as my savior and my Lord. I ask that you would lead me, guide me, direct me into your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.